0: What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. Happy Sunday, you guys, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of J Talks. My name is Jalen Tully, and how are you doing today? Good, thank you for asking. Um, This week I wanted to bring a little bit of a happier air to this week's episode. Last week was very, very difficult. Last week was a very difficult episode to record. It was a very difficult episode to do my research on and to participate in, and I can acknowledge that. I don't like recording episodes like that. I I want to address that right now just because I speak with a lot of passion and a lot of vigor when I talk about those types of topics. When I talk about police brutality, when I address racism and intrinsic and inherent racism within our society, I get very passionate and I get very involved in the conversation. But that's not because I like talking about it. I, I hate talking about that type of shit. I hate that this, the, these issues are so pertinent in our society that I even have to talk about it. Um, just to prove my point, that episode was actually pre-recorded the week before last week when it came out because last week was actually a very hectic week for me and I just, I wouldn't have had the time to sit down and record an episode if I had held it off. So I actually pre-recorded that episode the week before and then edited the edited it. <clears throat> oh my god, I cannot speak. Edited it, edited it. That sounds so weird. Does that sound weird to anyone else? Edited, edited it okay there we go i'm just going to i'm not going to say it anymore because that's i i can't even but um so you know i went through the process of uploading it and doing everything else last week and in that time of me recording it and then uploading it there have actually been you know two other instances that have gained national attention of black people being murdered by police like this is this is the type of shit i'm talking about how i can't even go a week without recording where i can't even record the actual events within a certain week where a week goes by and two other people one of which was a was a child was a little girl being murdered by police like this is that's what bothers me and I just I know last week was very was very difficult to listen to and that's not what I want my episodes to be. I don't want my episodes to be difficult to listen to. I don't want my episodes to make me cry because yes, I did in fact cry last week. Um if you haven't listened to it, there's your heads up and if you have listened to it, then you know. I I cried last week. And I don't want my episodes to be like that. I don't want to cry during my episodes. I don't want to yell during my episodes. I don't want to swear and cuss and, you know, out of anger in my episodes and I don't want them to be difficult to listen to. But, you know, I when, when stuff like this happens every single day, when stuff like this happens every single week, when you can't even go a week without listening or hearing of another story of a black person being murdered by police, that's, that's what makes me so passionate about this. And that's what makes me so angry. So, yes, I just did want to address that. Um, so, yes, I just did want to say something about last week's episode because I, I know it was difficult to listen to. And I just wanted to acknowledge that very, very quickly. Before we get into this week's episode, I also do want to acknowledge the fact that even though last week I said I would do in an episode in the entirety of the story of George Floyd and his murder and therefore the trial of Derek Chauvin, the verdict of the trial actually came out last week and obviously like I said earlier I wasn't able to record last week because of, you know, the the schedule that I had last week, but which means that I wasn't able to put it in last week's episode, but Derek Chauvin has been convicted on all three murder charges. And I just, I need to say this very, very quickly. I'm not going to go too in depth in the trial or the verdict or all of that stuff. Because like I said, I do want to do an episode in its entirety, the week of May 25th, which would be the year anniversary of George Floyd's passing. But yes, I do just want to say that Derek Chauvin was in fact convicted on all three murder charges, including second degree murder, third degree murder, and I believe second degree manslaughter. I'm not too, too sure on that last charge though. So like, don't quote me on that. But I, I also wanted to say that this is this is pennies in the wishing well of Black demands and what's necessary for Black liberation in this country. It's still a victory. Do not get me wrong. I'm still so thankful that this family can have some semblance of justice, but this is not justice. This is accountability. This is a man being held responsible for his murder, and the fact that we were so up in arms, the fact that we didn't even know what the verdict would be, that speaks to the bigger problem in this country. The fact that we can see a man pinning another man down for almost 10 minutes. The fact that we can watch this man losing his life. The fact that we can listen to him saying he's dying, calling out for his deceased mother. The fact that we can watch this, the fact that we can have this evidence broadcasted to not only the nation, but to the world and still not be sure of whether or not this man is going to be convicted of murder is that's, that's the alarming thing. And that's what makes me tell people that this is not justice because justice, I, I don't want to say that justice would have been us knowing for a fact that this man would have been guilty, but like that would have been more justice than what we have now. But with that being said, I also want to say that true justice is black people not having to fear the police anymore. True justice will be, us not having to hear of a new story every week, justice will be n- police officers being held accountable and being put through the training in the beginning in order to prevent things like this from happening again. That's justice and that's what we need to fight for and that's what we need to have you know, in our mind's eye when we think about the larger scale of the Black Lives Matter movement and what's being demanded of us right now. But I do just wanna say, thank the Lord that, you know, this man was convicted. I couldn't even imagine what, you know, what would have happened, what the fallout would have been if he had gotten off. I don't even want to think about the, not only the catastrophic damage that would have been done with riots and protests, and that's not me trying to villainize riots and protests because, because historically they work and societally they're necessary. But I, you know, along with the damage that would have been done with the riots and protests, but on top of that, the, the societal damage, that, and the political damage that would have been done coming from the political right and people who see Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization. Like the damage that would have been done there as well would have been catastrophic, I think. So again, so thankful that this man was convicted on all murder charges. However, we still do have the sentencing to look at, which will, I think will take place in June. I'm not sure though. He could go to prison for up to 75 years, I think. So we have to also keep the same energy and realize that accountability hasn't even been reached yet, because again, accountability is not only him getting convicted, but also him getting sentenced, what he deserved to be sentenced. Overall, that's just the, the little gloss over that I wanted to give about the Derek Chauvin trial in regards to the murder of George Floyd, the fact that yes, he was guilty, but we still have work to do. That's not justice. That's accountability. And that we still have to keep the same energy going forward when it comes to the sentencing. So that's kind of like the overarching point that I wanted to make about that. This week, though, I have a pretty jam-packed week for you. This week, we are going to talk about equality, and I'm going to do that through acknowledging my own privilege as a person. Because, yes, even though I'm a Black woman in society, and that means that I'm not very high on the totem pole, there have been a lot of pushes by state governments by state legislators, specifically Republicans, to restrict access to voting and to restrict the rights that transgender people, specifically transgender youth, have in this country. And this episode is going to be me acknowledging my own privilege in these situations while also trying to talk about them and utilizing my privilege to speak on these issues and stand up for these disenfranchised groups and people who are going to suffer at the hands of these legislative laws. At the end of this episode, I also do want to mention that I actually have gotten my first vaccine dose. Finally, it took long enough, but yes, I have in fact gotten my first vaccine dose. I got the Pfizer vaccine, and I'm going to talk about that at the, end of the, at the end of this episode, just how I felt, what it was like in regards to the COVID-19 vaccine in order to assuage some of the public's concern and hesitancy when it comes to getting vaccinated. But with that out of the way, let's do this, people. Let's jump right into this week's episode. So first things first, I would like to talk about the discriminatory laws targeting transgender people in this country, specifically transgender youth in this country. In the last month, there have been over 80 anti-trans laws in predominantly Republican states, regions, and sectors in this country that have been introduced. And while a lot of these laws have covered many aspects of society and restricting trans people's ability to exist freely within these aspects of society, Mainly, they have been targeted at restricting trans girls' participation in school sports and restricting their access to gender-affirming medical care as well. So first, I want to open up the discussion to the sports laws that are currently being introduced in certain legislators and passed by certain legislators. These laws are specifically aimed at targeting trans youth specifically trans women young trans women in this country and preventing them from participating on sports teams that match their gender identity the the argument for this is that it's it's an equality issue equality is in quotation marks obviously to ensure fair competition in sports for women, this is Republicans are trying to make this a for women issue. They're trying to say that oh, it's not fair that women are having scholarship opportunities, are having positions on teams, are having awards taken away from them because they're completing they're competing against people who are biologically male. And of course, I'm putting that in quotations marks quotation marks as well. Um, I I have felt a lot of things reading through this. Obviously, I want to touch up on the fact and I want to pay homage to the title of this week's episode by saying that I am not trans. I have, I've never experienced gender dysphoria, dysphoria. I have always felt comfortable. Granted, I haven't always felt comfortable in my own body, but I've always felt comfortable with my gender. I've always felt comfortable with my sexual identity and my sexual orientation. That's never something that I've questioned and that's never something that I've had to experienced the oppression of either. So I just wanted to say that now this is, like I guess like, you could probably infer by the title of this week's episode, this episode is going to be me acknowledging my own privilege when it comes to different socioeconomic and geographical positions in this world that I have that make my experience in this world, despite the fact that I'm a black woman, it makes my experience in this world exponentially easier because of where I live and because of the the cisgender and straight lifestyle that i live and that i that i affirm with. Um so first things first i did just want to get that out of the way and i did just want to say that i am speaking of a pl- from a place of privilege. I am speaking from someone who is cisgender and who's never doubted that. I'm speaking from someone who is straight and has never doubted that. I am speaking from a place of privilege and i feel comfortable saying that because I I don't think privilege is an inherently bad thing. I think when you have privilege and you're either blind to it or you're using it for the wrong reasons, I think that's negative in and of itself. But I think that we can use our privilege to speak up for people who don't have the same privileges that we do, people who experience the oppression that we don't experience. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. So when I say that I'm speaking from a place of privilege, I'm not trying to make it a negative thing. I want to make it a positive thing. And I want to use my voice to stand up for my transgender brothers and sisters in this country who are... You know, literally biting their nails and looking at these laws being passed wondering what is going to happen to them and how their experience in this world is already going to be so much harder despite the fact that it's already difficult for them because they're trans and they're a part of the LGBT community which we still don't wholeheartedly accept in this country. So I did just want to say that and get that out of the way now because I think that that's a very pertinent piece of information. But with that out of the way, I I have had a lot of thoughts floating through my head regarding this. And I have been so just, I I just, I haven't really known how to compartmentalize this because it is, to me, it is so outlandish. To me, this is ridiculous. To me, I don't understand how there is a mass shooting every single day in this country. And Republicans don't think that that happens enough or that there's enough evidence that guns are the problem to restrict access to firearms in this nation. Yet, how many times has a woman lost an award, scholarship or position on a team to a trans athlete? None. There have been there has been no evidence. There no Republican who has been asked this question has been able to come up with an instance in their state or region where this has happened. Yet there have been like I said over 80 laws that have been introduced and some of which have already been passed in this nation. And I, like, pick a script and stick to it. Either you need all the evidence in the world and you still don't want to do anything about a problem or you don't need any evidence in order to, you know, do something about it. That That's the same way I feel about, you know, the 2020 election and restricting voter access, which I will get to later in this episode as well. But it's, it's the same kind of idea. Like, how can you be so blind to such a pertinent issue such as gun violence in this country and say that nothing needs to be done, but at the same time you're going to turn around and tell trans youth who have a hard enough time existing in this country that they can't participate on sports because something that has never happened in the history of this country is is could potentially happen and you know you're gonna put all this effort into make into preventing trans youth from further expressing themselves and just further subjecting them to hatred and oppression and discrimination. I just don't get it. But more specifically, I wanna get into the fact that scientifically and biologically this does not hold any weight. Once I start talking a little bit more about the the medical side of this and how a lot of republicans have also tried to introduce laws that have been that have been targeted towards restricting access to medical reaffirming gender healthcare that was a weird way to say it like um <laughs> gender affirming healthcare I should probably just say it like that but um there've also been a lot of laws regarding that and I'm going to get a little bit more into the medical side of everything but I do just want to say that when it comes to puberty blockers and gender reaffirming medical care at a, at a younger age when children feel that they should start going through this, when children are starting to go through puberty, when children are starting to develop aspects of a, of a grown body that they don't want to have and that they don't want to possess because it doesn't, they don't feel like it affirms with who they truly are on the inside, these have been shown to stabilize hormones not just for all transgender people but specifically for male to female trans kids that equalize to that of their cisgender counterparts and possibly make those hormones level hormone levels lower So the worry is like, oh, we don't want women competing against people who were born biologically male because they have a higher level of testosterone, which means that scientifically they'll be competing against someone who has unfair advantages in their sports or athletics. But we know through puberty blockers through hormone therapy that those levels of hormones can like i said actually stabilize and reach an equilibrium to that of their cisgender counterparts so like i said scientifically and biologically this argument really doesn't make sense especially if you're allowing children to have access to their to this gender reaffirming healthcare but obviously this is why they're trying to restrict it to further you know substantiate their own argument which is like it's like a dog chasing its own tail it's 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 a it's a mind fuck i hate it i hate this you know, oh, we're going to do something that restricts your access to health care that will further allow for you to feel at home in your own body and therefore feel at home in your own community. But then at the same time, we're going to take that. We're going to take the fact that we restricted your access to healthcare and use it to substantiate our further bigotry about a, a completely different topic. Like the, it just it does not make any sense to me. And I wanna speak from personal experience because I, I said it in the NCAA episode that I did, but I grew up a three-sport athlete. I grew up a female three-sport athlete. And I can say wholeheartedly that, you know, I was never a bigot, so this was never a concern for me. But even even if this was like a possibility, which it's not, this was never a worry or concern for me. The chances of trans athletes existing, nonetheless, stealing, quote-unquote, from cis girls is nonsensical. Trans youth make up 2% of the U.S. population. Female athletes who are trans make up, I mean, a decimal point of that. Like, it's its not, it's, it's a such a small number. 2% of the U.S. population are trans youth. Imagine how much smaller the number is of trans youth who are athletes. And imagine how much smaller that number is who are trans youth who are female athletes and who want to exist on and participate on female sports teams. Like, those numbers are so astronomically small, I don't understand how this this can even be seen as an issue. And I also want to say this because this is quite possibly the most important part of everything going on. If you truly cared about equality... You would break down the sexist barriers within women's sports so that we could have more adequate access to scholarships, to awards, and for the chances to play in college and beyond. I also addressed this very, very briefly in my NCAA episode. But women don't go on to play college sports the say, at the same level that men do. At, at a fraction of the level that men do, we go on to play college sports. Women do not win the awards. We do not get the gratification. We do not get the scholarships that men do. There is already so much inequality existing between sports, between cisgender men and women, that have not even been addressed. So don't act like this is about equality. This is not about equality. This is about you wanting to find someone else to use as, as a scapegoat for your own prejudice and hatred. This I, I've seen a lot of people reference the um, the trans bathroom bills that were that were attempting to be passed in a lot of southern states a few years ago, which is also something that I've thought about a lot too because it's it's the same thing. It's the same thing as all of the other hatred against gay people and members of the LGBT community that we've seen throughout the entire existence of this country. You know, I, it's, it started with gay people. It started with the AIDS epidemic and how we villainized gay people and villainized the AIDS epidemic, even though it was something that we could have easily gotten under control. We could have easily saved millions of lives. And then it went on to the conversation about same-sex marriage and how, oh, we, we, we're disrupting the sanctity of marriage. We're disrupting the sanctity of the church. We are disrupting the sanctity of the ceremony for straight people. We cannot allow for these people to get married. We It will disrupt family. It will disrupt the church. It will disrupt like all of these different aspects of society And then we passed same-sex marriage and oh look at that society didn't fall apart And then they realized that they couldn't target gay people anymore because we we'd have moved on as a society We had moved on past gay people gay people were not something to ogle at They were not something to target and they were not people that we at all felt a need to to distance ourselves from anymore because they were such, just such a normalized part of society So then that was when Republicans and that was when people from the right started to target trans people. And it started with the bathroom bill. It started with, I think it was around like 2016, 2017, when all of these bathroom bills were coming to light. Like, oh, grown men are going to wear dresses and go into public bathrooms and molest your children. We got to do something about this. Jerry's going to tie a skirt around his waist and go kadoodle your kids in public restrooms. Even though that that literally never happens, this shouldn't be an issue. And it's just like, it's so pertinent that we're focusing on the wrong issues. We're focusing on issues that aren't even there. Like this is, the, again, just like the the trans women taking positions in sports and taking scholarships away from other women, it's like that never happens. People dressing up as women to go into the bathroom and molest children never happens. That is ridiculous. And like, they are creating issues that don't exist just so that they can further their own agenda. These are not about equality. These are not about caring about women. These are not about caring about your children. These are not about caring about the the already prevalent and difficult to cross stepping stones when it comes to women's sports. This is about these people wanting to further their own prejudiced agenda and they are running out of ways to do it. And so they're trying to create ways. This is all that this is about. And also, I really wanted to add that not only all of what I said, not only is this not about equality, but on top of everything, these laws will subject trans youth to unjust treatments and violation of safety. A a huge example that I've been seeing a lot of everywhere when when I was looking into what was actually happening for this episode when I was doing my research for this episode, a lot of people and a lot of medical experts, a lot of um, trans people themselves, a lot of, you know, members of the ACLU, political experts, you know, elected officials, a lot of them were saying the same thing along the lines of like, this will subject trans youth to gen genital exams, mandatory genital exams to make sure that they're not participating in sports that don't align with their biological sex, even though it the sport would would align with their gender identity. That that was like sickening to me, the fact that you're that we're going to subject children, minors, young men and women, my like I said minors, to mandatory genital exams and potential sexual assault and harassment and molestation because of the, the prejudice of a couple of Republican congressmen? Or are, we, are we kidding right now? Is, is this a joke? I, I don't care what you think about trans people. I don't care if you think being trans is a sin. I don't care if you think these people are going to rot in hell. It, it should not matter what someone does or does not have between their legs. No child... No, no teenager, no middle schooler or high schooler should be subjected to a mandatory genital exam to, to make sure that they're on the right sports team. No child should have to be put in a situation where a grown adult has to take a peek at what's in between their legs in order for them to be seen as a real human being or be seen as someone worthy of respect. That is that is so backwards and so wrong and so disgusting. I I could not imagine being a parent of a trans child right now because that's also a lot of things that I've been seeing is like thankfully a lot of tra- of a lot of parents of trans youth have been coming forward saying that these bills are disgusting, that they're not in support of the them, that this is going to subject their children to unfair treatment but like I, I could not imagine being one of those parents I, cu- I could not imagine sending your child to school and not knowing if they're if they're going to be sexually assaulted sexually harassed be made to show their genitals in order to show their biological sex that's ridiculous to me and i just that again it makes me sick to my stomach that this that this is seen as acceptable that this is seen as normal and that this is even seen as necessary Again, just disgusting. Um, but next, I wanted to talk about the gender affirming health care laws that have been al- that have also been in the mists of being passed. Um, 21 states have offered up legislation that would ban minors who are trans and/ or experiencing gender dysphoria from pursuing or accessing gender affirming health care. Um, these laws would prevent doctors in these states from giving minors gender affirming health care such as puberty blockers or hormone therapy and it would also prevent doctors from performing surgery which is usually not done on people under 18 anyway so i don't really get what the point of this is because like i said like most doctors would like will refuse to um, perform gender reaffirming surgery gender reassignment surgery on minors anyways usually that's a procedure that a lot of people want to wait until they're 18 to do, and a lot of doctors will refuse to do until someone's 18 anyways. So like I said, don't really understand the point of this, but anyways. Um, and to, uh, to give a little bit of definition on what these things are, because I know a lot of people might not be as in tuned to what it takes to transition and what a trans person has to go through medically in order to fully transition from one gender to the next, or from one sex to the next... I'm just going to give a little bit of insight into both puberty blockers and hormone therapy and what that entails. So first off, puberty blockers are a medication that temporarily, temporarily delays the effects of puberty, physically and hormonally. It, and it, they're often used on you know, younger children, children who are you know, 10, 11, 12, middle school age, who are entering puberty, who want to either prolong those effects or don't want those effects to happen at all so that it makes their transition in the future easier. Um, it also gives children more time to decide what they want to do, which I think is a great idea. You know, de- developing breasts, getting a period, getting facial hair, dropping your voice—a lot of those things can be really scary, especially for a child exper- experiencing gender dysphoria. So I, I you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree with with the with the social and scientific um, What? how do I want to say this? The the social and scientific support behind puberty blockers. I wholeheartedly think that those are such a great idea and such a great way to help children to navigate their gender dysphoria and trans experience so much easier and with so much less hesitancy and with so much less confusion. Um, next, hormone therapy. This is generally not prescribed until the age of 16, and it is considered the next step in a trans person's transition. The patient will take either estrogen or testosterone to further the hormonal or physical transition. So if someone was transitioning from male to female, they would take estrogen to, you know, produce breasts, wider hips, heighten, make their voice a little bit higher, um, lose the effects of facial hair and all that. And for someone who's transitioning from a female to a male. The, they would obviously take testosterone, which would produce facial hair, make their voice a little bit lower, give them a little bit more muscle mass and all of that stuff. It would also um, reduce their periods and make it so that they don't menstruate a- as often or at all. Um, now that that's all out of the way, I want to get into the arguments as to why people think that this is necessary or why people are supporting this idea. And it's it's a lot of the same arguments for the the sports. It's a lot of, you know, we, we have to protect our children, you can't pause puberty without lifetime ramifications, you you know, cutting off a penis or mutilating a vagina at such a young age. That's that's against God, that's a sin, that's you know, not something you can fix or turn back the clock on. And I just I just love how when it comes to climate change. Republicans are, you know, have their hands up in the air and they say, "Well, I'm no scientist. How do I know if the climate's changing? How do I know if global warming is real? I'm not a scientist." But when it comes to a woman's right to get an abortion or trans youth, suddenly every single Republican in Congress is like, "Hand me my lab coat. I have a scientific experiment to conduct." Like it, it's it's crazy. Like I said, it's the same thing as like the the lack of gun laws with all of this evidence versus you know, that these trans bills with little to no evidence for what they're trying to substantiate their claims with. Like, it's the same fucking idea of like, oh, we're just going to support science. We're just going to support certain ideas and certain evidence and certain facts when it suits us and when it suits our own bigotry and our own ability to restrict another person's ability to exist in this world freely. Because that's what they're doing. They're, res- they're restricting the ability for trans people, trans youth, to exist in this country as they are and as they want to be. Um, I already talked a lot about my thoughts earlier in regards to how this sounds a lot like the other plights against LGBT people that this country has perpetuated for the entire existence of this country, so I'm not going to reiterate that too much, but I I do just want to say that this will also lead to a lot more suicide, depression, anxiety, and struggle within the trans community. Trans youth have the highest rate of suicide among any single group in this country, and I, that 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 will only heighten if we further ostracize and make it harder for these children, for these people, to exist in this country as they are. And I I was actually listening to a daily podcast about this, and it was a it was a doctor in one of these southern states, and she was talking about how she treats trans youth. And how she'll actually get calls from the parents when, uh, when a child commits suicide and ends their life, and she said uh, on the on the floor um, when the, when the when this um, when these legislations were being deliberated, she said that every single time one of her patients commits suicide, she's gonna call these these legislators and she's gonna tell them that they have blood on their hands, that this that, that this net that these deaths. Are, are entirely their, their fault. Like that is that is heartbreaking to me. And it's not it's not like that's a hidden fact. It's not like it's a hidden fact that trans youth commit suicide in this country at a higher rate. It's not a hidden fact that trans youth experience depression and anxiety and mental illness at a much higher rate in this country. And that is in part because of how difficult we make their experiences in this country and how difficult we make it to be trans in this country and by restricting access to medical care by restricting the ability to participate on sports teams or you know play, play sports in general or have access to the things that make life more normal for people you are only going to make that worse you are only going to make this divide more cavernous and you're only going to cost more life so that's that's like the that's like probably the most prevalent thought that i've had about all of this It's like i i don't want to see the aftermath i don't want to see the the, the outcome of all of this because I know it's going to be devastating and I know, you know, give it, give it a half a year, give it a year, give it two years and we're going to see how many people have lost their lives because of this. We're going to see how many people have been subjected to more oppression, more discrimination and more mental illness because of these laws and because this out because of these outdated neanderthalic barbaric opinions of a of very few republican senators and we're going to see the, the 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 aftermath of all of this and i and i hope that for our sake we're able to rectify this mistake very very quickly and we're able to see what the outcome of this will be without actually having to see the outcome because i think if we see the outcome like i said it's going to be devastating and it's it's not going to be something that we will be able to recover from very easily. Um, the ACLU has, has already begun court proceedings against these bills. And a lot of, like I said earlier, a lot of parents of trans youth have also been speaking out and rioting and creating movements centered around the rights of trans youth to be able to go, you know, get medical care and receive health care and participate on sports teams however work is not done i think it's not dependent on the eclu i don't think it's dependent on the parents of trans youth i think it's dependent on us which is what i said at the beginning of this section when i talked about my own privilege and how i am speaking from a place of privilege i think it's the responsibility of us who do not experience gender dysphoria i think it's the dysphoria i think it's the responsibility of us who you know, do not subscribe to the LGBTQ plus community who do not, who are cisgender, who are straight, who have never had to experience that kind of oppression before. I think it's our responsibility to do our job to make this country more accommodating for trans people. Just like it's not black people's job to eliminate racism, it is not trans or gay people's job to eliminate transphobia and homophobia. That is something straight people started, that is something cisgender people started, and it is our job to eliminate it with the privilege and power that we have in society. Um, So I will leave a bunch of links in the descriptions below for resources that you can go to, educational resources that you can read up on or watch or listen to, I'll also leave funds and places where you can donate, places where you can read up on how to help, how to make your voice heard for on behalf of the trans community in such a controversial and, you know, debilitating time for these people. I think like I said, I think it's our responsibility to do that. I think it's the least we can do on behalf of this community. So like I said, I will leave a bunch of links in the description. Please feel free to go check those out. And like I said, as always, I also leave my link tree down there. There's constantly um, GoFundMe's and smaller organizations in my link tree that you can donate to where you can make a difference. So as always, check out the description at the end of the at the end of this episode and you know, do your part. Next things next, we need to talk about the voting restrictions that are currently happening right now. Voting laws that restrict access and make voting more difficult have now been introduced by Republicans in 43 states. You could have states like Oregon and Maine, where only one law has been introduced, or Georgia, where there have been 27 laws introduced, and so far, one being passed. And I just want to say it now, I'm actually going to use Georgia as a frame of reference. Obviously, we don't have the time to go over every single voting restrictive law in every single state or every single policy or every single legislative ideal that's been under question or passed or deliberated. We don't have the time for that. So for the sake of time and for the sake of frame of reference, because Georgia's voting restrictive laws and the law that they have enacted so far are so restrictive and are so overbearing, I think Georgia will be a great example to use for all of this and a great frame of reference to use for all of this. So like I said, just for the sake of this episode, I'm just going to be talking about Georgia and the voting laws that they've passed specifically. But before I get into all of that, I also want to say that these laws all stem from the big lie or the idea that there was unsubstantiated voter fraud in the 2020 election, which is what cost Trump re-election. A lot of laws have been specifically targeting absentee voting, given the you know voting during COVID and how mail-in ballots were kind of the way of the world this past election. And furthermore, the states in which these laws are being passed with the most vigor are in states where the election was especially close. So your Pennsylvanias, your Michigans, your Arizonas, and yes, your Georgias. Um, I think this also has to do with, a lot of people have said that this is also part of it, but personally for me, I also believe that this is a large part of it, is the fact that our country's demographics are changing. Our country is becoming less white and less me- male and less homogenous. And we are opening ourselves up to more diversity. Our country is becoming more immigrant-based. Our country is becoming more black. Our country is becoming more gay and, you know, more prominent with members of the LGBTQ plus community. And with that comes more blue voting. Um, And so, therefore, the political winds in this country are changing because instead of just having people who are voting on behalf of white men instead of just having a system that's only made to benefit white men. More people, you know, gay people, trans people, black people, natives, immigrants, Muslim immigrants, immigrants from South and Central America, more people are coming here and realizing that these, that the, that the laws and the constitutional policy that's been in place for the entire existence of this country, it's not made to benefit everyone. So obviously with that, political winds will gradually change. For me personally, that's also a large part of why I think this is happening because I think it's, it's very scary for Republicans seeing that their policies are kind of going to the wayside, that, you know, as this country continues to change, as the demographics in this country continue to change, their policy is going to be less appealing to those demographics. And I think, you know, that that must be a very scary thought. And I think that with no doubt in my mind, that is also a large part of why this is happening. But anyways, specifically, Georgia. Georgia had some extreme voter suppression bills be passed, and they were some of the first to get passed, which is, like I said, why I want to focus exclusively on Georgia. The bill that they passed, um, I think it was like SB202, I think it was. I completely forget, though. I, I It's something like that. But it included new deadlines to get and drop off absentee ballots, which are more restrictive, It has included a new section where someone must present a valid photo ID before they are able to register to vote. Um, There are also new restrictions placed on early voting, specifically on Sundays for souls to the polls, which I'm going to get into a little bit later. It is now illegal to give food and drink to voters waiting in line. Um, They have restricted the amount of ballot drop boxes within the state they have restricted the rights of mobile voting buses and last but certainly not the least corrupt a republican controlled board will now control and take over the local election offices i don't want to get too deep into each of these policies i just want to brush over you know the the ones that are more questioned on why they are suppression, because that has been a question that I've seen a lot on social media that I've had asked me a lot by a lot of people in my life. is like, how is this considered voter suppression? How does having to have a valid photo ID when you go to register to vote, how is that considered voter suppression? How does that unfairly target black and brown people? Because I a lot of people have been outspoken about these laws and how they are voter suppression, how they will unfairly target black and brown people in the state of Georgia. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have been confused because a lot of people have been like, how, how, how is this voter suppression? How is this, you know, how, how is this unfairly targeting black and brown people? How is this considered racist? So I do just want to answer like a couple of these points, obviously not every single one of them, because I've already been talking for 40 minutes. And I, you know, I want to wrap this episode up relatively soon. So I don't want to get too in depth with all of them, but I will give, but I will touch on just like two or three and talk about how these will negatively affect the community in Georgia and how it should be considered voter suppression. Before I get into any of that though, I do just want to say and I want to share my opinion on voting. I personally think that voting should be as easy as driving to work. I think that voting should be the easiest process in 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 American democracy or in any democracy for that matter. I think that easy voting is what makes a democracy a democracy. By no means do I think that there shouldn't be policy in place that makes voting more secure. I don't think anyone should be able to vote more than once. I don't think there should be, you know, loopholes that people are able to get through in order to make their vote more substantial or have more power than someone else's vote by any means. But with that being said, I think we also have to make voting as easily as pos- as easy as possible. I think that nas- days of national elections, I think those should be federal holidays. I think everyone should be able to get the day off work and be able to take it upon themselves to go take themselves to the polls and vote. I think it's ridiculous that we expect people to work full eight to ten hour days and still find the time to be able to vote when polling places are now, you know, only open, o- open at 9 a.m. and close by five. I think it's ridiculous of us to think that People in this country who are literally struggling to get by on the jobs that we already have here are expected to also take the time out of a very busy day to go stand in line, sometimes for hours, especially in areas of Georgia where people are standing in line for up to 12 hours. That's a half of a fucking day just to be able to vote. And despite the fact that I don't think that's right more than anything, I don't think that's democracy. I don't think that's how democracy should function it shouldn't be a hassle and it shouldn't be impossible and it shouldn't be that hard or take that long for someone to be able to cast their ballot in a line. Um, And this, I wanted to add this to this week's episode. I wanted to make this also a conversation about me acknowledging my privilege because where I live, there are like, Three thousand people in my town. We all go to vote the same place, and like honestly, I think when there's like a fifteen to twenty minute wait in the line to be able to vote, I think that that's long. I that like that's usually like not that's usually long for where I am, and that usually usually doesn't happen. So for me, voting is very very easy, and to to live in a more rural area, to live in a smaller town. Granted, there are there are disadvantages to living somewhere like this, but. When it comes to being able to vote, I I am completely aware of the fact that I have huge advantages over someone who lives in a predominantly black, predominantly mixed or culturally diverse area in Georgia, in Mississippi, in Texas, in places where they're actively trying to restrict your voice and actively trying to restrict your ability to vote and to make your voice heard. So, yes, I feel comfortable with that saying that where I live and where I vote and where I can make my voice heard, I have a huge privilege in that. And like I said, there are downsides to where I live as well. I live in a very white area. I live in a very red area. Like where I live is by no means perfect and is by no means a perfect place for me to be but when it comes to being able to vote i know i have a huge privilege and i and i wanted to acknowledge that and i wanted to say that i have i even though i've only been voting for the last year i have never had to have the experience of waiting in line for hours to vote i haven't i've I haven't even had to wait in line for a half an hour to vote before and so again just like the the tr- conversation about trans people i feel as though i have an obligation to speak on this and as someone who has always had easy access to voting I don't think it's fair that other people don't, and I don't think it's fair that other people have to wait in line for hours, that other people are having their ability to vote restrict, restricted because of who they're voting for. That is not how a democracy is supposed to work. No matter what party you assign to, no matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, neither or in between, it, it is not fair that Republicans are restricting people who predominantly vote Democrat based on the fact that they predominantly vote Democrat. Because if Democrats were doing that, y'all would be up in fucking arms over it. But when Republicans do it, it's okay. And they're being seen as people who are protecting the sanctity of our elections, even though all they're doing is spitting in the face of our democracy. So with all that being said, now I want to delve into kind of the more specific points as to why some of these examples are voter suppression and why they are racist and why they target black people. First, I want to talk about the restrictions on early voting, um, specifically in regards to Sundays and souls to the polls. I said I would mention it later and here I am mentioning it later. Souls to the Polls is an effort by some of the black churches within the areas of Georgia and also some of the neighboring states as well. It is a movement in which the black churches in the area will actually bus the members of the congregation and bus the members of their churches to voting locations so that they can vote together and it will make people's access to voting much, much easier. And this is a movement that everyone knows about. This is a very prominent movement in the South, specifically Georgia. If you live in Georgia, you know about Souls to the Poles. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or neither. Souls to the polls is something that's very prominent within the black community and something that's very prominent within the Georgia community. Republican senators, Republican congressmen within Georgia, they knew exactly what they were doing by restricting access to voting on Sundays. This is a direct attack on the black vote. This is a direct attack on the black community and therefore a direct attack on the black culture within that community. It has become an intrinsic part of the black community within Georgia to take themselves to the polls after service on Sunday to vote together. And by taking that away, like I said, you are very directly taking away the black vote and taking away the ability for black people to vote. So not really going to spend too much time on that. I thought that that one was pretty straightforward, pretty, pretty, pretty on the nose, (laughs) um, personally. So like I said, not going to spend too much more time on that one. Um, This one's disgusting. It's now illegal to give food food or drink to someone standing in line to vote, even water. Um, it is it like you could be arrested for it and fined for it. Like it's it's now illegal. I think this one's disgusting, especially in a state and in an area where people, like I said, can wait up to twelve hours in line to to cast a ballot. If if your if your wait lines were at fifteen minutes tops, then I'd be like, you know what, this is still a disgusting law because who who are you to tell me who I can't give food and water to? Like th- that's just disgusting to me in general, but. Like I said, if your wait times were what I have to wait in line to vote for, then then I wouldn't be as angry. But the fact that it's a well-known fact that a lot of people in Georgia can wait, on average, eight hours in line just to cast a ballot, and you're making it illegal for people to give food and drink to these people, that's disgusting. That's abhorrent. Because what are you going to do? Just stand in line for eight hours without a meal? Stand in line for eight hours without a drink? And people are like, well, they should be prepared. They should go into it knowing that it's going to take that long. Bullshit. Again, this is not democracy, if that's what you're saying. We are not a democracy, if that's the opinion you want to have. Like if, if that's the opinion you want to have, you're more than welcome to have it. We live in America. You can have whatever opinion you want. It's the greatest part of this nation, and it's also the greatest downfall of this nation. But you can have whatever opinion you want to have. But if you're going to have that opinion, you have to know that then that, that, that then you don't have to get to have the opinion that America's a democracy. That's not a democracy. By forcing people to wait eight hours in line to vote and expecting them to be ready for that, expecting them to be okay with that, expecting them to have their own hot meals, to have their own water supply, to have their own food to sustain themselves for literally a half of a day. 12 hours is half of a day. Even eight hours is a third of the day. Like, that's ridiculous. And again, you can say whatever you want about it, but if you're gonna support that, we don't live in a democracy. Um, restricting the amount of ballot drop boxes. This one seems pretty pretty on the nose again. Um, they're They're making it so that there's one ballot drop box for every 100,000 people that live in an area. I think that's ridiculous, especially if you have a place like Atlanta, like if you have a big city like Atlanta that is predominantly black, you're going to have one Dropbox for a hundred thousand people. So if every single person in that area tries to use a Dropbox, it's not even going to be able to fit all of the ballots that are going to be dropped into it, that doesn't even make any sense to me. They, like, I'm, mm, again, not going to spend too much time talking about that. In the rural areas, yeah, you know, that's going to be much, much fe- more feasible. That's going to be much easier because you're not going to have the high density of population. But in an area like Georgia, where you have Atlanta, which is such a huge city, and also such a hugely black city, like I said, this is directly targeting Atlanta. This is directly targeting the black population in Atlanta, and therefore making it harder for them to find areas to vote and to find ways to make their voices heard through ballots. Uh, uh, Again, this one seems pretty straightforward to me. What else? Oh, um, restricting the rights of the mobile voting buses. So the mobile voting buses were created in Georgia, actually, as a way to combat the long lines that people have to face when they're waiting in line to vote. I know, right? Shocker. You know, so instead of people waiting 8, 10, 12 hours in line to be able to cast a ballot, these mobile voting buses would travel all around the big cities such as Atlanta and the big, and the other big areas of Georgia, especially the rural areas where people wouldn't have as easy access to voting locations, and people could walk up to the bus, make their vote, register to vote, and then, you know, drop the ballot off there and make that process so much easier and so much more attainable, especially for people living specifically in rural areas and specifically cities. By restricting that, again, you are just making it harder for people to vote instead of people having access to these mobile voting buses. You're forcing them to then again wait in line for, a half of a day in order to make their voice heard which again I think is disgusting. So uh, this one also seems pretty on the nose but I also understand if you don't really understand the history of the mobile voting buses you might be a little bit confused as to why this is a big deal so that's why I just thought I would explain it. I, I, I kind of want to wrap up because I've actually been talking for a while now and this has been really really long. This has been much longer than I wanted this episode to be. Um, lastly, I know a lot of people have been asking questions about like how a fo- how a photo ID, how having a valid photo identification card or some sort of photo ID, how having to present that when you're registering to vote is unfair and potentially racist. And I just wanted to say this: it is very, very clear. You you don't have to look very deep to see that photo identification and having to show valid photo ID is something that disproportionately targets Black people. Not only because it's harder for Black people to obtain certain types of photo identification, but on top of that, it also just opens people up to more profiling. It opens Black people up to be profiled more, to have their identity questioned, to have their credentials questioned, to have their ability to vote or make their voices heard in other ways, or do other activities that require photo identification harder for them. We know this. We know photo identification is something that disproportionately affects black people in this country. And we, like we, like I said, we know this. So even though I, I completely understand where it's like having a valid photo ID shouldn't be seen as voter suppression, it shouldn't be. But when you take into the consideration the scope of the larger issue of discrimination in this country and profiling of Black people in this country, it really does make sense. Because I want to say it now, I completely agree that fo- having a valid form of photo identification, that that shouldn't be voter suppression. That's ridiculous. Like Everyone should have should not only have access to valid photo identification, but should also be forced to show it when they're registering to vote. That's something that I think could make the election process much more secure. That's something that I think could make the election process mu- also much more much easier, much more attainable. But like I said, then you have to also think about the 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 bigger picture and the overarching societal impacts that photo identifications have, that the possession of photo identifications has has had on the black community in this country and we've known that it's disproportionately negatively affected them so again i completely agree this shouldn't be a big deal this shouldn't be an issue people shouldn't be upset about this but when you but you have to kind of take a step back and see the bigger picture and see that this is a larger that this is a larger issue that this is something that even though it shouldn't disproportionately affect black people it does disproportionately affect black people and until we fix that People are still gonna be angry at this law, as they should be. Alright, that is that is kind of the the meat of this week's episode over with. That is kind of the the main points of this week's episode that I've gotten through. Um next, before we wrap up this week's episode, I do want to talk about my COVID vaccine. Yay! Clap, clap, clap. I'm so excited, even though I only have had my first shot. Um, I get my second shot on May 14th, so you can best believe that. For that episode, I'm also going to be talking about my second shot. But my first shot went well. I have had no adverse side effects from what I've seen. For the for the first few days, I was really tired. I was really sleepy. I was taking naps during the day, which I normally try not to do and I normally don't really do. Um, and my arm was tender for for about 24 to 36 hours. It, it hurt to like use my arm and I could feel the soreness and the tenderness throughout my bicep when I would move my arm to use it. And then after that, it kind of just felt like a bruise, like it would only be tender and sore to the touch. And when I like pushed down on the injection site, and even now it's like, it's like a bruise that's, you know, two to three weeks old. Like it's very faint. I really have to push down to feel that tenderness and that soreness. Overall, honestly, I feel like I had less adverse side effects than when I get the flu shot. Because when I get the flu shot, I can get a little stuffy and I can get a little flu-like. Um, I'm, I think that once I get my second shot I, the effects will be much more negative just because that's what I've heard is usually people get sick with one or uh, with one or the other of the shots if they get if they got a little more sick with the first shot then they usually don't with the second and vice versa if they didn't get sick with the first shot they usually do with the second which is why I will definitely keep you guys updated with my second shot when I get that. but as of right now, I'm doing well. I feel good. I am halfway vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. I'm I'm doing well. I'm happy again. No really adverse side effects besides the the napping for 2 to 3 days after the shot and the tenderness a little bit after. I I really haven't seen a difference in how I act or my body or anything. So I did just want to say that. Now I did just want to put that out into the world and tell people that you have nothing to worry about. It, it, it should be a priority to you to get vaccinated. It should be something that you are considering or that is in the plans for you. I wholeheartedly recommend everyone gets vaccinated. Like I said in an episode a while ago, both my parents are vaccinated and now I'm on the way to be fully vaccinated vaccinated as well. Um, I think it's some I think it's something that we all should have an obligation to do. I think it's something that we should all feel obligated to do. Again, it's still a personal choice, even though I don't really think it should be, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, But again, it is a personal choice, so I'm not trying to pressure anyone into doing anything, but I think that if we truly care about ending this virus, if we truly care about ending this pandemic, and we truly care about getting to some sense of normalcy, sometime soon I think that we should all take it upon ourselves to consider getting vaccinated. Alright guys, as you could probably infer, it is getting close to that time in each episode where it comes to an end. But before that happens, I still have to give you guys what is in my rotation this week. And what's in my rotation this week is actually a podcast that I've been listening to. It is really good. It is called How to Save a Planet and it is a Gimlet Media podcast. It is hosted by journalist Alex Bloomberg and scientist Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who is also a black woman. It is such a good podcast and it's They talk about climate change and they talk about climate issues in a way that's not overwhelming because that's something that I constantly notice when it comes to finding ways to mitigate my impact on the climate around me and find ways to make this world a happier and healthier place for everything and everyone living here. It's really digestible, but it's also really informative. It's really fun to listen to. They joke, they laugh, they are super intelligent, super educated. They're able to get the points across that matter, but like I said, not in a way where it's overwhelming or where it's difficult to listen to. They have episodes dedicated to answering listener questions, and they also have segments of each episode where they'll actually answer some of the most commonly asked questions depending on whatever topic they're talking about in a specific episode like i said really informative really easy to digest not it doesn't give you you know that impending doom feeling or that anxiety feeling that a lot of other climate documentaries or climate podcasts do because even though cl- climate change is a very prevalent issue it's it's very hard to digest that because it is such a prevalent issue and it's it's literally the world around us dying and it, there's no there's no easy way to to tell someone that there's no easy way to help someone understand that but they just do such a good job at making it digestible, which I love. So definitely go hop over to that podcast, give it a listen, heed the advice they're giving, heed what they're saying, listen to what they have to say. I guarantee you, you will not regret it. All right, and with that being said, this week's episode is finally coming to an end. You guys already know the drill. If you enjoyed this week's episode and every other episode before now, please feel free to share it with your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, your grandma, your teachers, your professors, your coworkers, whoever you think will enjoy this podcast. Also, be sure to follow me on all of my social media platforms. All of my handles are just at Jalen Tully, spelled J-A-Y-L-I-N-T-U-L-L-Y. Like I said earlier, I will be leaving the links for a bunch of resources about helping the trans community, about educating yourself about the, the trans lifestyle and the trans experience in this country. Those will all be in the description below along with my link tree which is there in every single description of every single episode. And finally, quite possibly the most important part of every single episode I record, always be sure to leave this episode and every episode ready to educate often, learn freely, and always love equally. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, guys. Hope you enjoy your Sunday, and I will talk to you next week.